When our kids were very little, we took them to the animal kingdom, and we were on this bridge, crossing this stone bridge, and we looked down, and there were these massive alligators. And they were moving slowly in and out of the water, and we were like, wow, they were huge. I mean, we don't have alligators around here, so I don't know, you know how big they were, but they were big. I mean, they were, they were definitely easily the length, the length of a tall man or greater. So it was seven, eight feet, just massive alligators. And we were watching them for a while, when all of a sudden, directly underneath me, I heard snap, and this jaw shut, and there was this massive alligator, and it was literally right down below me the whole time, but I just couldn't see it. It was just sitting there, so still, in plain view, um, but I couldn't see it. And this morning, we are going to look at this text in Luke chapter 15. That's our reading for today. And in the same way that uh, there were these alligators that were obvious, and then this one alligator that was completely not obvious, we're going to look at this text in Luke 15, which is a familiar passage, and it's, it's famously referred to as the prodigal son. And there's things about this story that are totally obvious. But there's things about this story that are not obvious. Because it isn't until the end of the parable that a jaw snaps shut. And when that jaw snaps... All of a sudden we realize that there was something there that was actually there the entire time that Jesus draws our attention to. So this is the third part of a one parable that had three parts to it. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and now this lost son. And last week we looked at the lost sheep and the lost coin, and Jesus is building this narrative. Uh, and, we, and this morning as we read Luke 15, we're going to see how it culminates in this story of the lost son. I'm going to start reading verse 11 to the end of the chapter. And Jesus said, And there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country and began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And as he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. And he heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked them what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, 
And your father has filled, has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and he entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting for me to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, now is found. This is God's word. Now I want to revisit something very quickly before we unpack this text. The whole reason we have this teaching is because the religious crowd was murmuring about Jesus. Jesus was sitting there hanging out, having dinner, eating with all kinds of people who were considered to be social outcasts. And based on the principle that a man is uh, known by the company he keeps... Based on the company Jesus was keeping, they assumed he only had some deep, dark, hidden association, sympathy, love, attraction to their sin. So basically, the religious crowd is scandalizing Jesus for hanging out with, these, with, these, uh, with the outcasts. So that's why this whole thing began. But if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Because Jesus perfectly interprets God. Jesus is God. If you want to know the heart of God, you look at Jesus. And so by having community with unbelievers, Jesus reveals God's intention. We don't isolate ourselves from the culture. We don't isolate our children from the culture. We engage the culture. We love the culture. We minister God's grace to the culture. Without indulging in the sin of the culture... Or adopting the ideologies in the culture that are contrary to God's word. Basically, we cooperate with the culture at every opportunity and we challenge the culture when necessary because we're not afraid to do either one. And that's what we see here in Jesus. So Jesus is here, the friend of sinners, and he's drawing all kinds of people that the religious crowd totally rejected. And up until Jesus sat down, the only thing that, the only thing that those outcasts had as a gauge of how God felt about them was the Pharisees. So... By logical conclusion, they would look at how the religious people were treating him and say, well, obviously God doesn't love me. Obviously God doesn't care about me. But the extravagant grace that Jesus was offering wasn't just saving those individuals. That extravagant grace was actually creating a new kind of community that was frying religious circuits. Because not only was Jesus surrounding himself with people who were down and out, he was surrounding himself with people who were up and out. People who were down and out, like prostitutes and drunks. And they had people who were up and out, like very wealthy, successful tax collectors. 
And the religious people didn't have anything to do with this kind of category because you've got a tax collector wearing a Rolex, you know, sundial, sitting next to uh, the, some son who got thrown out of his house because he shamed his father. And that person is sitting next to a woman who has this thriving fabrics business, but she used to worship the Baals. And she's sitting next to this young girl who's actually the daughter of a prostitute who's stealing food so she can live. I mean, there's this... This group of people with this diverse backgrounds all around Jesus. And he's sitting there with his vision for the church. This diverse group of people from all walks of life who are gathered around him. Who are being loved by him. Who are receiving grace from him. Who are being renewed by him. Who are being reformed by him. Who are being restored by him. And so... They don't know what to do with this, the religious people. That's why we have this whole story. That's where this whole thing began. In your English Bibles, the heading will say the lost son or the prodigal son. And I need you to know that all those headings that are in your Bibles, those are added by the translators to help us find our place, okay? So that heading, the lost son, or if your Bible says the prodigal son, that's not in the original Greek. It's important to know that because it's a little misleading. This isn't about one lost son. See, where we're going to go this morning as we unpack this text is this is about two lost sons. Two lost sons lost in two very different ways who receive extravagant grace from this father who's trying to heal his family that's being torn apart. And so this word prodigal, because your, your Bibles will say, you know, he went and he spent everything he had on prodigal living or reckless living. Prodigal doesn't mean immoral. So the prodigal son, it doesn't mean the bad son. Prodigal means over the top, without regard, extravagance. It means completely and uh, utterly sparing no expense. So it says the young, the young guy went and he spared no expense with his inheritance. And what we discover as this text unfolds, as, as, as we dive into it, is that the, the heart of this father spared no expense. The heart of this father was extravagant. The heart of this father was prodigal towards the rebellious son and the self-righteous rule keeper. And the, God, the Christian God is a prodigal God. Tim Keller wrote a book called Prodigal God. I've, I've, I've leaned on it heavily for this series. Because the, God, the Christian God is an extravagant, over-the-top, gracious, and loving God. And he extends that grace to the rebellious ones that spit in his face and run away. And he extends that grace to the self-righteous rule keepers who think that their good behavior puts God in their debt. Both of which are completely lost in two completely different ways. And this teaching, it begins in a crisis and it ends in a crisis. It begins with the crisis of a young son running away in rebellion. And it ends in a crisis uh, because the older son is uh, upset and he doesn't want to go into the celebration. So you kids who are in the service here today, how many of you kids have ever watched a show and it's like a to-be-continued? Ever watch a show and it's, like, and it's like a to-be-continued, right? Some of you maybe are like, I don't know what that is because I binge Netflix, man. There is no to-be-continued. I just watch one series. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm projecting. Uh, but 
when I was a kid, there was this old 60s uh, Batman show, the OG Adam West Batman, 1966 and 1968. Now, it was a little before my time because I was watching it in the 80s. But the end of every Batman episode ended like this. It was like, will Batman plunder Parsley into plundering peril or the Joker's schemes? Tune in next time, same bat time, same bat channel, right? Every episode ended like that. That's what's happening here with Jesus, the way he ends the story. It starts in a crisis, and it ends in a crisis. Tune in next time to see if the old self-righteous rule-keeping brothers will enter into the gracious, extravagant love of their God. Tune into Luke 19, the triumphal entry. Spoiler alert, they don't, okay? You can read that this afternoon if you want. But that's how this thing plays out. He's extending this extravagant grace. And what's tearing the family apart is idolatry. And we see this because in the heart of both of the sons, you know, think about this. Idolatry is you center your life on something other than God. You put all your hope in it. You put all your love in it. It is ultimate to you. You give your life to it. You desire that it defines you, that it fulfills you. It brings joy to you in an ultimate way, right? That's idolatry. And both of these sons have their hearts set on something, and it's not their father. So kids, I want you to imagine, all the kids that are in service today, imagine you're a grown-up now and you have children, and you come home from work, and your kids run up to you as you come in the door, and your kids run up to you and they're like, you're home, yay! And you go like this, you go to hug them, but they don't hug you, they go like this, and then they take their hands and they shove their hands in your pockets. I'm like, did you bring me anything? Did you bring me anything? You got anything from me? That's this story. They're not interested in the father's face. They only want what's in the father's pockets. Idolatry. This is what I'm after. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's this. We can reject God by living like he's dead to us. And we can reject God through religious rule-keeping, thinking that it obligates God to bless us. But God in extravagant grace, never ceases to reach out and receive and restore us. So let's look at the first thing. Kids, look at your notes. This is a, a, a blank you can fill in here. This is the first section here. We can reject God by living like he's dead to us. All right? In verse 12, the younger son asks for his inheritance while his father is still alive, which is basically saying, you're dead to me. Give me my money now. Right? He wanted the father's things more than he wanted the father. And if our hearts are infected with this kind of idolatry, um, like the younger brother, then when we don't get what we want from God, we're out. It's as simple as that. We just decide God's as good as dead. We'll leave Christ's church. And we'll uh, seek to fulfill our souls somewhere else. Because we've been disappointed that God hasn't given us what we want him to give us. We can go through all kinds of religious motions, right? But underneath all of it, We don't really want God. We just want what we think God will give us. Charles Spurgeon is a very famous preacher in the 1800s. I read his sermon as he preached on this text here that I'm looking at today. And here's what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, The son was already far away from his father as far as his heart was concerned, so it wasn't long before his body followed. And so in verse 13, the younger son wastes his inheritance and he tries to find fulfillment, and he hits rock bottom. Verse 16, he's feeding pigs, right? And in that culture... Pigs was rock bottom, most unclean. Pigs were unclean in the Jewish culture. So Jesus uses the pigs to 
to depict the fact this guy's life couldn't get any worse. He's convinced at that point when he hits rock bottom that he'll never be welcomed back as a son. It's like, I've done too much. I, we can relate to this. We've all done things and said, oh my gosh, if anybody ever found out, they wouldn't love me. Uh, I can't go to church because of what I did this week. I can't go to church because of what I thought this week. I can't go to church. Because... So i got to hide now. There's no way God will receive me back as a son. My sin is too dark. My past is too dark. It's disgusting. And the truth is, God's grace stretches further than your sin. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how embarrassing and dark and horrifying it is. It doesn't matter if it keeps you awake at night because you think there's no conceivable way that God could forgive you and receive you back. He can and he does. And this son says, you know, he's, I'm not, I can't come back as a son, so maybe I'll come back as a servant. And uh, so he starts preparing his speech, right? And for what he's going to say to his father, he starts his speech writing. And uh, so this kind of rejection of God, it's obvious. It's like those alligators that were moving in and out of the water. You can see it a mile away. But there's another way to reject God that's not so obvious. I mean, the younger son rejection was obvious, but there's another way, because it's under the service. It's like that eight-foot alligator that was there the whole time, but I didn't see it until its jaw snapped. Well, at the end of the parable, the older, son, the older son's jaw snaps and reveals something. So kids, look down at your notes. We're going to look at the second way we can run away from God. The, the first way is we can, we can run away from God, you know, relating to him like he's dead. But the second thing is we can reject God through religious rule-keeping, Thinking that by doing it, God is obligated to bless us. Right? So at the end of the teaching, the father kills this fatted calf, right? And the historians estimate that the fatted calf would feed somewhere between 70 to 100 people. So the way to think about this is it's like a wedding reception size. It's huge. Meat was a delicacy in the ancient world. They weren't going to Costco and saying, oh, wow, AAA is on sale. This is incredible. Let's have a barbecue. I mean, they just didn't eat meat unless it was like a massive celebration. So what Jesus is depicting in, the, in his teaching here is he's saying, this is the greatest day of the Father's life. And why is it the greatest day? Because the son that spat in his face came back. And so the older brother hears the party, and he goes ballistic, and he refuses to go in. Why? Because in the ancient patriarchal society, the older brother got two-thirds, and the younger brother got one-third. Which means this party that he's listening to is costing him. Which means now that the brother has returned, that's very costly. The return of the rebellious brother is extremely costly. Kids, I want you to um, look down at your notes for a second. So we'll do some ancient economics here. See those ice cream cones? See how one has two scoops and one has one? Imagine you've got a two-scoop ice cream cone. You have a younger sibling and they have one scoop. But then they drop their scoop in a pig pen. And they cry about it. And then your father sees their tears, and, and in order to console them, because they're so devastated, they drop their ice cream cone in a pig pen, it's covered in pig poo, it's a poo cone, you understand? Where this is going, you know how bad this is? It's gross. The father takes one of your scoops, gives it to, you understand how this is going? That's why he's so upset, that's why he's not going to go into this party. In verse 31, the father says to the elder son, Son, all that I have is yours. But the self-righteous religious rule keeper is thinking, I know! That's the point! 
That's my ring, that's my robe, that's my calf. This whole party has come out of my inheritance. I don't care that the lost has come back. I don't care that he was dead and now he's alive. I don't care. I'm not in this for your grace revolution, princess. I'm in it for the money. I don't care that he's come back. The only reason I'm in church is so that one day it'll profit me. And now this person has come in here who's costing me something. I don't want it to cost me anything. Do you see this? And so Jesus is painting this picture. The older brother shows his heart. The jaw snaps. The alligator is now obvious. He's not interested in the father either. He cares about the father's things exactly like the younger brother. So, on the surface, their behavior is completely different. It couldn't be more opposite. But underneath the surface, the motivation, the driving force behind the behavior is exactly the same. The younger brother's idolatry looks like running away to find fulfillment apart from his father, but the older brother's idolatry looks like self-righteous rule-keeping for the explicit purpose of getting stuff from the father. But neither one wants the father. Neither one cares about the father. The young one's like, I'm out of here, and the older one's like, the only only reason I'm here is I want the hashtag blessed life. It's the only reason I'm here. That's what gets exposed at the end. And so he embarrasses his father by making him come outside. He refuses to go in. That, that's, that behavior is disrespectful. Even by modern standards, it's disrespectful. But by ancient standards, it's radical disrespect. So the parable starts in a crisis, and it ends in a crisis, right? They both, both sons have these disordered loves. If you value possessions over people, that's disordered, right? If you care about your stuff more than you care about your family, there's something disordered about that. But if you care about stuff and people more than you care about God, there's something disordered about that. Which is what Jesus is getting at. Both of the rebellious son and the rule-keeping son, neither of them care about the Father. Their hearts are disordered. And the problem, of course, with our disordered hearts is that when we put all of our hope in something to be ultimate, our spouses, our children, our careers, our education, our stuff, our house, our... When something becomes ultimate, we crush it. We crush it with our expectations that it will fulfill us in a way that only God can. We crush those people with our expectations because our hearts are craving to be fulfilled and they cannot do it. Your spouse will never do it. Your kids will never do it. Nothing will ever do it. So we crush it. But then it, it crushes us. They crush us because they can't meet our expectations. Which is why Augustine said rightly when he wrote this in the, in the uh, third century... You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so the religious rule-keeping son shows his heart because he says, Look, I've been slaving all these years. You never gave me anything. The religious, the religious person says, I've been putting in time. Man, they're just tapping their foot, looking at their watch, waiting for God to give them their true God. It's the irony of all of this. So he disrespectfully doesn't even call his father, Father. See how dark it is? He doesn't say, Father. He goes, look. In the Greek, behold. Right? Who says behold? Teachers. Right? Do you see how disrespectful this is? The father comes, ex- extends extravagant grace to the one son. Now he's extending extravagant grace to the other son. The son is like, behold. Let me open your eyes, old man. 
You're not really up to what I'm up to. I have an agenda. You're not accomplishing it. Um, like TikTok, I thought my life was going to be here, but it's not. You know what? I'm done. I'm done with God. I'm done with Christianity. I'm done with the church. Forget it all. That's the heart of the religious rule-keeping son. It's not a relationship of love. It's an arrangement for leverage. And it's not working out. And so, if we fall into that kind of idolatry, then when hard times come in our lives, we're going to be crying, I don't deserve this! Because we think that all of our religious box ticking has somehow made us immune. And so, I don't deserve this! That Some of the angriest people during trials and hard times in life are religious people. Because they think that because of the life they've been living, they don't deserve it. That's not Christian. That's not scriptural. That's not the Bible. But if our hearts are at rest in God's grace, when trouble strikes, we're not going to be saying, I don't deserve this. We're going to be saying, God is with me in this. God is with me in this. My father is not abandoning me in this. If we suffer from the religious mentality of the older brother, then we're going to be predisposed to comparison. That's why he hears the party and he doesn't want to go in. Right? Because when we hear the dancing and the celebration in somebody else's life, if we don't have it in our life, our first thought is going to be, what about me? After all that I have done, after all that I have given, after all that I have... That's the heart of the religious rule keeper. They can't handle it. I've slaved for you all these years. That's how he described himself. I've slaved for you. The Greek word that he describes for himself, duleu, duleu, a slave. I am a slave compelled to do your bidding. That's what he says. This is the Greek. He doesn't see himself as a son, but a slave. Now he's all angry because his life isn't working out. And now his, son, his, his brother's getting, getting something that he doesn't think he deserves. You know, Jesus will invite anybody to lunch, but the religious rule keeper will eat anybody for lunch. And that's what's going on. Remember what, where Jesus is when he's telling his story? He's having lunch with the people. He, he's, he's in the feast. He's in the celebration. They were lost, but now they're found. They're with Jesus. They're not lost people anymore. They were, but now they're not. And he's in the celebration. Do you see this picture? And he's saying to the religious rule-keeping brother who's outside, saying, do you want to come into the feast? Would you like to have a seat at the table? He's inviting them in. This is radical and extravagant grace. But the religious mindset is that if anybody deserves to be blessed around here, it's me. But I got news for you. Placing our faith in Christ and gathering on Sundays for worship and exercising spiritual disciplines like prayer and, and, and scripture meditation, this doesn't put God in our debt. We don't do it to put God in our debt. He doesn't owe us. He doesn't owe us nonstop life of career promotions or financial blessings or disease-free bodies or dysfunctional-free families or contention-free marriages or problem-free children. I mean, that's not, that's not why we gather uh, to worship God. We don't gather and worship Him in the hopes that this whole church thing will pay off and be useful. We gather to worship the Father because His extravagant grace is so beautiful. His renewing grace, His reforming grace in us. We want to gather because we love Him. We're not cramming our hands in His pockets. Our hearts are at rest. That world is crazy. Go home and check your news feed. It's nuts. I'm not going to get political right now, but it's so hard for me not to. It's not appropriate for me to do that. But the world is, it is crazy. Where is the rest? It's in coming and resting and worshiping in this great God of extravagant grace. So we can reject God by living like he's dead to us, and we reject God through religious rule-keeping, thinking that it obligates him to bless us. But here's the third thing. Look down at your notes, kids. Here's the third thing. God 
in extravagant grace, he never ceases to reach out to us. He never ceases to receive us, and he never ceases to restore us. Look at what's going on here. The father's family is being torn apart. What does the father do? What do you do when somebody breaks your heart and wounds you? Well, one of the, one of the best ways of protecting your heart from further wounding is to shut them out of your life. I mean, if you, are, if you are hurt enough and wounded enough, most of us will say, the way for me to not have to deal with this hurt and pain and sorrow is to never see them again. I mean, I have done that. I can't be the only one in here who's approached wounding and hurting that way. To be like, I have a, I have a great way of not feeling this again. Goodbye forever. But what does the father do? When he is wounded in a radical way by both of his sons, the father, in a confounding defiance of what the sons actually deserve, extends extravagant grace to both. In verse 12, when the young son said, you're as good as dead to me, give me my stuff, you know what the father's response was? The ancient world, the response was, get out of my house, I'm going to hit you so hard, you're going to be able to read the back of my hand like a road map. That was the ancient solution. But what the father does is it says he divided his property. The the, the Greek word for property, when it says that the father divided his property, the Greek word is bios. Here's why I'm telling you that. Not, not, Not for no reason. In the Greek, this is what it says. The son asked for his usias, but the father divided his bios. Two different words. The son asked for his property. Give me my property. The father divided his life. Give me my property. Give me my stuff. So the father, in response to him wanting the stuff, divides up his livelihood. In the ancient world, your land was your life. It was your livelihood. So the kids, just so you know, he didn't like go to the bank and sign some papers and then do an interact transfer and give his son the money. This was public. This was embarrassing. Everybody would have known it. He's tearing his life apart for the son. In the ancient culture, you'd get thrown out. But the father doesn't throw a son out. By dividing up his own life, this is it. The father made a return possible. The father made redemption possible by tearing apart his own life. The father doesn't cast out his rebellious son. He tears apart his own life to make the return possible for his rebellious son, and that is the gospel. Jesus was willing to have his own life torn apart to save us. He lived the perfect life we should live but we're not, and he died the atoning death that we will never die so that in the end our death is not final, and he rose again from the grave, which gives us the hope that in the end the story of your life is not darkness but light. It is not death but life. This is the gospel. And Jesus was willing to tear his own life apart, to be divided so that we could come home. This is the beauty of the gospel. We can always return to him because of Christ, always and without exception. This is the good news that causes our hearts to come to rest, that when when they get diseased like the younger brother and we want to set up these little mini messiahs and hope that they satisfy it, it's when, when we see this grace of Christ at the cross, it compels us to come back home. When we see that the Father will always receive us back, it compels us to come back home. And that same extravagant grace was extended to the older brother. Because when the older brother heard the sound and he discovered that it was about his younger brother coming in and he wouldn't go into the feast, he's, it's, it's embarrassing. He doesn't go in and he makes his father come out. He makes his father leave the celebration and come out into darkness. 
This is the gospel. He makes the father... Well, he doesn't make the father do anything, but the father is willing to do it. Excuse me. The father is willing, doesn't send a servant out. His father is willing to leave the celebration and enter into the darkness. It's unthinkable to come out and seek you while you're brooding in the dark like an angry Batman. Be like, I'm going to come out and I'm going to extend this incredible grace to you. It's humiliating. The father leaving the celebration and leaving all of his guests and leaving the comfort and going out into the darkness is humiliation. That's the picture. As Jesus, because it's, it, because it actually says that the father's action was pleading. The Greek, work, the Greek word for pleading is parakaleo. And the parakaleo of the father meant like this intense, passionate pleading. The original audience is like, what? This undeserving, rebellious, self-righteous rule keeper is out in the dark and you're going to plead with him to come in? Like passionately plead? What's Jesus doing? He's extending grace to his opponents. He's sitting at the table. He's sitting with those who are lot. And now he is, by extension of his teaching, teaching, making a passionate plea to come in. The religious rule-keeping son doesn't say, Father, he says, look! But the father responds to that religious rule-keeper and he says, son. It's all this pleading of the gospel. This is the father's grace on display. God left his party in heaven to come out into our darkness and incarnate himself in Jesus Christ, to humiliate himself, to clothe himself in the dirt of his own creation, to plead in extravagant grace, even to the religious people, even to the delusional, misguided ones who think that because they're slaving away in the church that God somehow owes them something, this is mind-blowing grace. I wouldn't do this. You wouldn't do this. We would have said, forget it. You've hurt me. You've wounded me. You're done. I'm cutting you off. But God, in his great grace, goes out and search and, 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 and seek to bring healing to his, to his family. This is the, uh, the gospel on display in the heart of this father. And so he's inviting these Pharisees to see they're the older brothers. And he's inviting them to stop trusting in the rule keeping and to start trusting in the Redeemer. And I want you to notice that, again, Jesus doesn't resolve the crisis at the end of the parable. It's not like at the end the older brother goes in and, they, and he wraps up the teaching with a nice, neat bow. He leaves it unresolved. It's very uncomfortable. And he does that on purpose. Because he's, he is extending this gracious invitation. Will you come and sit with the lost who were once found? And this grace is on display each week in the Lord's table, which we're about to eat and drink together. It's clearly shown in Jesus who at the cross tore his own life apart to give us eternal life. He left his home to bring us home. He heals our souls. He heals our disordered loves. He rescues. He renews. He restores. We can run away in rebellion like God's dead. We can run away in rule-keeping thinking that it obligates God to bless us. But in both cases, God, in extravagant grace never ceases to reach out and receive and restore us. Let's pray.